2: and get 10% off your plan.
0: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, it is in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner, I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek.
3: And I'm co i I'm the department's editor at Adweek. David, it's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, welcome back. Welcome back to the country
3: yes um for the folks who are listening um i was in south korea for some family matters and thankfully safely safely i am back and um we have lots to talk about.
0: Yeah, we do. Um, and with us to talk about that, we've got Mary Emily O'Hara, our diversity and inclusion reporter here at Ad and, and Mary, this is your first appearance on the show, right?
1: It is. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk to you guys from the comfort of my living room in Portland, Oregon.
0: We have uh, quite, quite a bit of news by now. People who are true ad nerds will have uh, heard that the Can Lions is canceled officially, so we'll obviously be talking about that. We're going to be talking about uh, Adweek's feature this week on uh, the 18 Champions of Diversity and Inclusion. Uh, They're featured in this week's issue uh, who cover a real range of uh, of aspects of backgrounds and uh, LGBT representation and minority representation, and it's great, and uh, and Mary Emily wrote uh, several of those, so she will be talking about those. Uh, But first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself about your your kind of path to Adweek.
1: Yeah um, I actually started the job at Adweek as the first diversity and inclusion reporter helping to inaugurate this new position. I started on February 1st so obviously it's been a very interesting and complicated time to start a new job uh, because we had a lot of initial uh, energy and excitement and goals for how the role could play out and then the coronavirus pandemic happened and I think everyone at Adweek since then has been kind of unilaterally focused on reporting that out and how that's impacting the industry, but I, we have had some really creative ways to report on it from the d perspective, so that's been really good. Um, one of the stories we've been following recently has been the uptick in bias and discrimination against Asian Americans, and we've actually just... Um, partnered with Fishbowl app to do a survey of Asian Americans in the advertising and marketing industries to kind of figure out what's going on there. So we have some, some interesting stuff going on. Um, but I think that, you know, it's such a new role and and there's still a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of things to come.
0: You are based in Portland, Oregon, correct?
1: I am. I'm in Portland. I'm actually a native New Yorker and I lived in New York for, Recently, for about five years, um, I was working at NBC News, MSNBC Vice, uh, and I came back to Portland, which is where I had gone to college. And, you know, with what's going on in New York right now, honestly, I'm really glad that I left this city. I think it's a tough place to be during a public health uh, crisis like this. Um, and Portland is, you know, very spacious, very quiet in comparison, but it also has a really vibrant advertising, uh, community, of course, because of Wyden and Kennedy and all the little shops that opened up around that. So it's a, it's a great place to be, uh, to have this perspective for this kind of role.
0: And, uh, before we get going, where can folks find you? Like, what is your social media platform of choice that you're, that you're comfortable sharing with the public?
1: I, you know, I'm kind of an open book and I'm sure that's something we'll talk about when we get into diversity and inclusion, but I believe in being really authentically yourself online. Um, even though that can be risky sometimes (laughs) from a professional standpoint, but I'm on Twitter all day, making dumb jokes and and posting useful information or the information that I think is useful to people. Um, it's at Mary Emily O'Hara and basically that's the same handle that I use everywhere on Instagram on LinkedIn and even on Facebook um, so yeah people just search at Mary Emily O'Hara and you'll find me somewhere
0: wonderful well Co uh, I figured we would uh, start with the the Can Lions news uh, if, uh, I if I mean I'm sure others there's been it's, we're living in such a newsy time that it's honestly hard for me sometimes to take a step back and remember what all's happened in the last uh, few days like the industry, the advertising industry is certainly reeling from uh, we're just now really starting to see the first raft of uh, layoffs and cuts uh, and cutbacks on staffing. And, um, you know, that it's one where I think agencies were taking a little while to uh, kind of uh, figure out exactly how they were going to staff back. Uh, but a lot of that's still coming down the pike. Like we're hearing a lot of rumbling. But the, the one thing that really hit this past week uh, was the cancellation of Camp Lions.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the biggest event, it's our Oscars, and I remember, you know, even though our timelines these days are very warped, I remember, um, you know, you and I and everyone else was kind of waiting um, a couple of weeks ago uh, to see what decision they would make, um, the organizers, by, you know, April 15th, and they had postponed to um, Q3, and now, um, outright already, they've decided we're not going to have a 2020 version like the Tokyo Olympics, you know, that's going to just be delayed for a year. Um, instead, we're going to move forward, hopefully, with 2021. So, I guess that means no awards, no judging, um, you know, all those all those dollars and sponsorships um, that go along with the festival, you um, and, you know, to me, it also kind of signals, um, what does this mean for a Q3 for so many of the events that had pushed back to then? Is it a signal of, um, you know, further, further delays? Um, it, it's, I feel like it's like the first big event that's really canceled instead of just pushed back. What's your perspective on this, David? I know you, you've been um, more than a few
0: times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I've been about six or seven times to Cannes. Um, I think... I spent, we're recording this at the end of the day Friday um, and so you'll probably be listening to this on Monday or so, uh, but I spent pretty much all day today as I record this talking to folks literally around the world, talking to people from uh, from Spain and Brazil and um, uh, Ireland and, and just all over about kind of their perspective on what do you lose when you, when you cancel CAN. This is unprecedented. Uh, CAN has never, to my knowledge, been canceled. Um, because it, it started after World War II, you know, a lot of things were canceled during World War II, and so the, it, this uh, can started in '54. Uh, it's never been canceled, but neither has the Olympics. So it's the word "unprecedented" is kind of losing its its news value these days. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like everything is unprecedented. Um, and the and you know I think we've even talked about this on the podcast, but like living in a historic time, like living through history is, is not all it's cracked up to be. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's bad. I'm not thinking so much about Cannes here, but it's just like, these are those moments where you don't even have time to take stock of how weird it is. Um, because you're just like, every day is weird and (laughs) everything is, is unprecedented. Um, but the, the, I'll say this, that I think who I really feel bad for are the residents of Cannes itself, the city, it's a small city, um, and it really is highly dependent on two festivals. One, the film festival, which I have to admit I've not been paying – I'm sure the film festival is not happening. Um, but uh, the, the film festival and then the advertising festival are the two big ones. They're bigger than anything else that happens in that town. And without those, I'm, I feel really awful for the people that live in that city. Uh, there are restaurants and cab drivers and you name it. There's, everyone there generates probably the vast majority of their money. Uh, For the year from those again, sadly, that's not unprecedented Uh, many people around the world are dealing with that right now But I did want to just kind of give them the first nod of people that I that are are in my thoughts And I sent some I sent some notes first thing this morning to some of those folks who are not in advertising But who like do the heavy lifting for the rest of us and feed us and and take care of us when we're there Um, But the the big response I got when I asked people, you know, what do we miss by not having the can lions No one is regretting the awards. Well, I mean, not say no one. Uh, There are agencies who are just emerging. Uh, I would say someone like GUT. You know, GUT is an agency that over the past year, this has been a formative year for them in a way that maybe not, I I couldn't even name any other agency. Uh, A year ago at Cannes, uh, they basically hired away two of the top creatives from David uh, the agency, which then hired its new CCO at Can, Um, and so a lot happened at Can last year. And, uh, and because of that gut has really been staffing up like crazy. They've been doing some great work over the past year. Uh, David also, uh, the agency they kind of compete for talent with has been doing incredible stuff under their new leadership. None of those agencies are going to get that credit, right? Mm. Like they're not going to, They're not going to be able to get, and for GUT, you know, David, that's one thing. David's won a ton of Oscars, Uh, Oscars, Lions, (laughs) Um, and uh, they've won a ton of Lions. Uh, GUT um, is really just getting started, and so that that would have been a big year for them. Uh, But I did talk to one of the ECDs at GUT, and and he didn't bring up any of that. He really just said, this is a time of, of meeting people and networking with people, and getting perspectives. You know, this is the thing I kept hearing over and over, is you get out of your bubble, like whatever your bubble is, you know, New York, Miami, wherever it is, you get out of it and you go to this festival where everyone you talk to is fascinating. Everyone is from somewhere completely different. The gutter bar is like the place you hang out at the end of the night. Um, And I love just going up to random people and talking to them, where are you from? and, And finding out, I've met people from dozens of countries Uh, Just by doing that, and so that's what that's what everyone's talking about. Really, is going to be missing is that um, that kind of perspective of of insight and learning from someone else from another part of the world. But on the other hand, um, I don't know. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. We're living in a shared moment, right? Like like that idea of of getting a hold of each other from different parts of the world and and having a, a a you know a collaborative conversation. We're kind of having that right now, right?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, in a this is another overused word or phrase, you know, in the new normal um, of of collaborating and connecting and communicating. You know, you mentioned the the people of Can, and I it, it couldn't help but think about South by Southwest and a little bit of the similarities on the impact, the local impact there, and we see now that um amazon prime is going to be hosting um whatever films that would have shown at south by's um festival so i don't know if you know anything's going to be made up for this year um just even virtually um and i'm curious you know with south by southwest um we saw that okay this is a true example of how experiential marketing needs and will shift. Um, you know, something that was said in the CAN statement um, alluded to how priorities have changed for for agencies and creatives. Um, what's what's going to change beyond the obvious potential, like restructuring and, and layoffs, um, as CAN kind of may amplify? What does this mean for you know creativity? Um, you know, this past week you hosted on Ad Week Together, our daily live show, um, this idea of how to kind of stay creative. What, what are you also hearing from folks in the industry about about creativity in the time of coronavirus?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that is hitting everyone is quarantine, right? All of us. Like, whether you're exposed to coronavirus, which unfortunately many of us are, uh, in terms of people we care about uh, dealing with the actual disease, um, we, we, you know, the disease has reached a point where we all know somebody now um but the the quarantine is affecting everyone and i've talked to quite a few creatives about that um we you know we have a story in this week's issue about how this is on the on the positive side which positives are a little hard to come by these days um on the positive side uh there's a lot more networking a lot more mentorship um oh Co, you know what we should do we should play a little of our april fool's gag here um that might be fun. Just play a little of the audio.
3: Yeah, I love it.
0: So uh, let me give some quick context. Um, it, obviously, a weird, weird year for April Fools. Um, not, not a year to be pulling pranks and and just to you know read the room. Um, but we decided that it could still be done, uh, and so Adweek uh, surprised uh, five or six uh, kind of up and coming talents in the industry. Uh, they're all in different roles. Some were copywriters. Some were social media planners, some were just students trying to figure out, you know, kind of going into brand marketing. And what we told them was, uh, hey, uh, I, I sent them a note and just said, hey, would you mind uh, doing a recorded Zoom call with me about some of the obstacles you're facing in your career or, you know, some of the issues that you're thinking about as uh, your career really gets going. And so we got them on this Zoom call with me, and then we surprised them by dropping okay. in a, a VIP uh, guest who was kind of specific to their, um, you know, to, to, the, to what they do. And so the VIPs we had, because I don't know if some of their voices will be familiar, um, but not all, so I'll just go ahead and tell you, it was uh, Wendy Clark, the CEO of DDB Worldwide, uh, one of the largest agency networks on earth. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, who's probably best known for his content, uh, but also is the CEO of an of a agency, VaynerMedia, uh, and runs several other businesses and uh, we had fernando machado the global cmo of burger king cindy Gallup, who is definitely the most vocal uh, advocate for equality in uh, the advertising industry and then my personal favorite we had isaiah uh, (laughs) musafa most famous as the old spice guy Uh, but uh he was just you're going to hear some of him uh here a little bit but uh keep an eye on adweek.com because we're going to be posting longer videos but I, I was on the call, obviously, with Isaiah uh, while he was helping these two young creatives talk about advice for their career. And just what a what a wonderful human being. Like, what a warm and genuine. And just as someone who's been covering him for over a decade, <laughs> I was just really glad to see he's he's a legit great guy um, and just took this so seriously. And he literally said at the beginning, like, I love this. I love this. Aww. <laughs> so let's listen to a little bit of that, of our highlight reel from how this went down and you can you can google advocate April fools and you will find the full video uh, but here you
3: go hi i'm wendy clark i'm the ceo of ddb worldwide i'm, I'm even dressed with my shirt so that you can recognize me and I do it more like <laughs> easily
1: i am the founder and ceo of make love not porn pro-sex pro-porn know the difference i'm gary Vaynerchuk. i'm the ceo of baner media
2: hi my name is isaiah mustafa i'm an actor
1: What's your relationship like with the creative team?
2: I love like working with creative because it's, it's your idea. It's, it's what you kind of came up with. So I'm just um, the vessel or, the, or the, the person who facilitates everything or kind of just gets it, gets it out so people can see it. So as, as an actor, I really want to know exactly how you saw it when you thought of it and, what, and how you want me to portray it.
3: What a lovely, lovely idea. I know it took a little while to get everyone together, but uh, just like seeing reactions uh, makes it really worth it. And re- something to, you know, that brings a smile um, to everyone's faces. And, and what, a, what a lucky opportunity um, for, for those up and comers.
0: Yeah, the, the thing that made me most happy was that um, was that the the VIPs seemed to like it the most. Like obviously the the, the you know, these kind of rising talents were um, they were they loved it. They were happy to meet these folks. But I was so proud to see and so happy to see that, you know, Fernando Machado and Cindy Gallup and Wendy Clark and all these folks, that they're out there posting on LinkedIn how honored they were, they're tagging this person, uh, that they got to talk to, they're following them and emailing with them you know, they're building a connection that like, I and and we didn't tell them to do that. We didn't ask them to do that. Uh, it was a big ask just for them to, to make time for us. Uh, but, um, you know, that was just so great. They took it so seriously. All of them in the middle of very busy schedules, uh, made time for these, these folks in, in such a wonderful way. So, um, that, that, kind of gets me back to I guess the long winded way of answering a question you asked a while ago, but about how creativity is changing. I think the quarantine has made people really change their perspective of how we collaborate, who we collaborate with. Um, and then how that, how that manifests, uh, Mary, I, I'm curious to hear, you know, even outside of advertising, how are you seeing, uh, this quarantine era affect the way people create content, the kinds of creativity you see out there?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, for someone who's worked from home remotely by myself in my living room for about two years, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. honest, um, the biggest shift for me has just been that suddenly offices are actually more accessible to me than they were before. um a lot of a lot of newsrooms are still catching up to remote workers and the idea of online team meetings on things like Zoom. And I think that, this has been a period where everyone is really rapidly adjusting to it. They're seeing the benefits. They're seeing the drawbacks. And this is a reality that I've been living for a while already, um, ever since I left New York a couple of years ago. But, you know, I, I remember at my last uh, full-time job, which was at Into, um, which was Grinders LGBT news site into. Uh, we would frequently have issues with the video link and stuff like that. And because I was the only remote team member, a lot of times those those links would just be forgotten and I would be just sort of left out of the meeting or something. Um, not to call anyone out specifically, but that is the kind of thing that that does happen to remote workers. And a lot of workers are remote not necessarily by choice, but maybe because they are disabled or have um, kids that need more care or something like that, uh, some reason that they need to work from home. I know someone who's worked remotely for years because he has to stay in Texas where his father is older and ill and ailing. Um, and he can't just up and move to New York, even though he's in journalism. So there's there's always been this population of people who were sort of zooming into things. And now i you know I know that this is a challenging time for everyone, but I actually really feel like um, good about the fact that that perspective is being highlighted because I think it it really helps us iron out the kinks there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. and I, I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. I've been remote full time for six years now. And I wouldn't say I've necessarily felt left out, but I do think that tools that have been available, like, these video chat, these Zoom... Talk, like, like, I saw a stat the other day that Zoom has gone from, uh, I think, 10 million daily users to 200 million daily users uh, during this transition. And, you know, just these tools were available, but we weren't using them, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, some creators were. I mean, there's famous stories like uh, She and Him, right? Like the the Zoe Deschanel uh, M. Ward collaboration where they did everything by long-distance... Uh, you know, sending each other files back and forth and collaborating that way. It was happening, but I, I I don't feel like it was ever really mainstream. And then now, and I'm I'm as guilty as anybody. I never wanted to hop on a video chat. Like, I never wanted anything to be... And then all of a sudden, and I hope this is true for the folks listening, like, I hope this is true at your workplace as well. But, um, you know, it's really opened up the AdWig staff in a way. Like, we all are so much more... Aware of each other mm. now. Coa, um, I mean, I know you've been traveling a lot, and, but you've you've made time to kind of log into some of these. But we do like virtual happy hours, and we do a lot of meetups. And almost everybody turns their camera on. Nobody really sweats. Their kids climbing on them in the background. In, in fact, we all love that. Like dogs, pets, kids, um, always welcome. Uh, <laughs> like any insanity in the background is always appreciated. Uh, crazy Zoom backgrounds always appreciated. But You know, I know that you two are are newer to the Adweek newsroom, but has it helped you kind of feel more connected to the team?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, especially just, you know, we have this thing called the standup, which is our morning meeting. And um, before we would just kind of have the remote employees dial in. And now you can see, you know, as you said, everyone's faces and living rooms. And this is a great time of seeing people as humans and um, getting a peek into their lives. And, you know, that fosters um, a, a deeper, more personal connection um, as we <laughs> blur the lines between our home and office. Um, so, you know, I, I do miss in person um, anything at this point, <laughs> um, but... Uh it's, you know, we all know that we're trying to adjust to this to get to, through this together and um, finding creative ways to, to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I'm curious about what will happen in the weeks to come when we establish a routine and, you know, eventually what will happen, you know, when we go back. Um, not necessarily to the way things were, but um, to to the shift from the way things are now. Yeah. yeah
0: and the, the things we took for granted too, right? Like all <laughs> little things that's like, I miss like, you know, I know the cliche answer, although that is true. Like I live a few miles from my parents, but I miss being able to just go see my parents and hug them. Like we've been good about staying isolated and keeping letting, hopefully they've been isolated too. But it's just, Like, my daughter asked, like, I told her I was going to the grocery store, and she's like, can I go with you? Which, normally, she would love to. Like, that's a big part of our kind of bond with each other. And I was like, no. Because Uh it's it's like doing a supply run in Walking Dead, right? Like, I am so stressed out when I leave the house now. It's just like, oh, I'm going in, and I'm not going to. Get near anybody and i'm not gonna touch anything <laughs> and we're, get in and,
1: there was a great reductress meme about that on instagram today it was basically like recipes that only have five ingredients so you can get the hell out of the grocery store
0: <laughs> yeah and so like i have to tell her but she's just itching to get out of the house just like you, you don't really realize even just little things like going and getting a cup of coffee or whatever because i'm a, i'm a big extrovert and uh you know i don't know how you two would classify yourself but i am despite working from home, I'm a severe extrovert and this has been taxing.
1: I'm actually a more introverted person and it's, it's still getting to me. So I can't imagine what extroverts are going through. Like normally I really enjoy working alone in the quiet of my house. And, um, you know, lately I find myself just desperate for zoom parties or going on long walks in the hopes that I'll run into somebody walking their dog and they'll let me pet the dog from six feet away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: I am an ambivert, and um, yes, we're we're all we're all feeling it in some way. It's going to hit us all at different times. Um, and now I do my laundry with gloves and a mask on. So I don't know. <laughs> I,
0: I've been I've been enjoying like, and I know this is different for everybody, but I the fact that I I don't take it for granted anymore. Like this past week, my anxiety level has been really low. Mm-hmm. And I am not an anxious person, to be clear. Like, I'm a very just kind of mellow person, I think. I don't know. People who know me may disagree. But, like, I, I have not been mellow <laughs> this, last, this last month. I'm As you listen to this, I'm going into week five of quarantine. Uh, and it has not been the most mellow experience for me. Not because of my family. They're lovely. And it's been great. Just, just the whole – just living. Just living in 2020 has really kind of ground me down and left me feeling – a little like, like a wrong nerve in a certain, um, but this past for some reason no real reason I can bend. I I felt good like I have not the anxiety I'm I'm sleeping a little better, um I, maybe we're just getting into these habits, uh, you know we're adapting. I'm proud of Americans because I've always kind of criticized our own ability to adapt. Like Americans tend to be more like I have faced a minor inconvenience and now I will be completely furious. <laughs> it's like anything that stopped me from having a completely effortless life i if i have to hit one to speak english like that's that's a bridge too far and i've always made fun of that and uh, but i am i've been kind of impressed with how much people have adapted and changed without overly flipping out but anyway, um <laughs> i digress we should we could talk about this as we have for weeks on the podcast we continue talking about this uh, we always want to hear from you, no matter what it is. I love just getting your notes um, and, and uh, sharing them with the team. So send us a note to podcast at adweek.com about how things are going for you. It's podcast at adweek.com. We're going to take a break, and we will come back, we're going to talk about our champions issue and the people who are really uh, championing diversity and inclusion in our industries. We'll be right back to talk about that.
3: In our Champions issue this week, we highlight 18 champions of diversity and inclusion and the way that they are helping the next generation. We're joined again with Mary, and Mary, you spoke with um, a couple folks that we profiled. Uh, We'd love to hear about the the work that they're doing, who they're working with, um, what are their missions. Uh, Why don't we start with Claudia Edelman?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the perfect person to start with because, again, I'm new to Adweek. I started on February 1st, right before all of this happened, but one of the very first people that I connected with was Claudia Edelman, Claudia Romo Edelman, uh, Edelman excuse me, and the reason why is because, of course, Claudia has so many different projects that really do hit the D&I beat, um, and she also sits on Adweek's Diversity and Inclusion Council, but Claudia talked a bit about, of course, mentorship, but also about what her project, um, the Hispanic star has been doing and how it's pivoted since the coronavirus pandemic, because what she, what she did have going on um, was this gigantic corporate marketing, corporate diversity initiative that she was launching called Hispanic star. And I mean, it was connected to everybody from like Pepsi to Verizon and um, they had planned a launch for the kickoff game of Major League Baseball season, which I think was supposed to be March 26. It was, it was sometime very recently. And of course, everything just fell to the wayside. Like like all of the things in our lives, everything was canceled. Um, the project no longer really made sense for right now. And instead, she completely pivoted this entire corporate marketing campaign with all of these powerful corporations behind it, all of this backing, and turned it into basically like an employment uh, outreach campaign for the U.S. Latino community. And just like took all of the assets, all of the resources that she had set up for this corporate marketing thing and turned it into something where she's now using those resources and connections to get Hispanic-owned businesses into the supply chain for large corporations like Unilever and P&G. And she just like quickly pivoted on her heels basically and made this something that she can use to help in this crisis. And I was really impressed by that. She also told me that this is her fourth pandemic. So because Claudia Edelman has a humanitarian marketing background, she worked with UNICEF and United Nations and all of those kinds of NGOs she was able to see um, maybe more than a little bit of the rest of us. She was able to see the long-term impact of a pandemic like this. And to think on her feet and think, what is the most useful way that I can contribute here? And she very quickly realized that the long-term unemployment and economic impact was going to be the biggest factor because she's seen this before. That's so wonderful and important and she was
3: right because you know we saw a record number of unemployment claims come
1: um -hmm.
3: and you know she doesn't forget um her community and the latino community um so that's that's really wonderful she was um i was able to hear from her um at the cmo move summit um earlier this year um she and ty um Mm -hmm. were also um speaking together and Uh, Ty is from LinkedIn, which is prioritizing um, a lot of the coronavirus updates and also, you know, the, the job losses and whoever is still hiring Um, actually her full first name is Tyrona. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about her initiatives and her work?
1: Yeah. uh, So Ty Heath um, really struck me right away. Uh, She, she runs the B2B Marketing Institute at LinkedIn, which is kind of like a a global marketing think tank. Um, And it's a new project, a new initiative that uh, she actually hired her mentee to work on, um, which was also interesting to me, that sort of mentee-mentor relationship that turns into the working workplace relationship. But, um, you know, I mean, at the time that I did these interviews, it was kind of right before the crisis really blew up and we were still focused mostly on diversity and inclusion um, and how that that is played out every day, not just in the workplace but in our own personal lives. And what struck me about Ty is that she's one of those people, who works more from an optimistic standpoint when it comes to dNI she she recognizes that it's obviously important to acknowledge that there's challenges and obstacles and that companies fall short when it comes to diversity. But to her, the focus on what's actually possible is even more important. So she talks about you know looking at the problem, finding a solution right away, or just asking questions about how far you can grow, how far you can push your company to grow. Um, in the short and long term. And, and she just really, you know, had that that sort of positive spin on it, like each problem when it comes to diversity and inclusion is the opportunity for a solution. And I thought that was really inspiring, because a lot of times diversity inclusion work is, is focused on, you know, where where we have gaps that need to be filled, um, where we're falling short.
3: And are these um, mentees like how did how did they get chosen um, and and get to work with the likes of like Victoria Russell?
1: You know that I I can't really speak that well to that because these this particular crop of mentorships um, had something to do with the Adweek Council itself, and that was before my time. But I do know that some of the mentor-mentee relationships that the Champions issue focuses on. Uh, Some of those relationships have taken place for many years. So Tyrona Heath has worked with her mentee for a long time. Claudia Romo Edelman has also known her mentee, Mariana Vasconcelos, who runs an agriculture tech startup out of Brazil. She's known her for several years. Victoria Russell from Papa John's, I believe that her mentor or her mentees, are newer to her and that they came out of this Adweek program. So that's one of the interesting things about what's going on with Adweek's DNI Council right now is that it's creating mentor-mentee relationships that didn't already exist.
0: Yeah, I should give a, a quick plug to the Adweek Executive Mentor Program, uh, which I believe is in its second year now, uh, or at least second round. Um, and it's a long-term Mentorship, and that's what I, I really like about it, is that we've also been trying to find ways to connect people for just kind of quick mentorships, kind of like those surprise thing, the April Fool's thing we we mentioned earlier. But the the you know the Adweek Advoc- uh, executive mentor program uh, is really about building these long-term relationships, and and it, it has a very explicit purpose of helping diversify the C-suite and helping get more leadership. You know, it's it's there's there's plenty of pipeline issues that are holding back. I mean, we all know that, but really the tightest part of that, um, that blockage is, is when you're talking about getting into the C-level, uh, you know, getting CEO, CMO. And that's what this program was really created to help address is by making more of these connections, introducing people who are already at the, you know, the VP level or they're already oper- operating at a somewhat senior level and getting them these opportunities to learn from someone who's already made it uh, to these kind of peak levels and it's just, it's so heartwarming to see. Like, I'm really proud that Adweek is playing a central role in that. But, you know, the, these folks never say no. It's not like there's this ivory tower where people don't want to give back. Uh, and it's the same with that April Fool's thing we did. And, you know, there, there were some people who couldn't do it just because of logistics. But the people who did it were so excited. And they were just like, this is going to be great. I can't wait. And I didn't have to, like, talk them into it. I didn't have to, like, you know, explain why it was going to be cool, uh, and I love that. I just think that we're at this point where there is such a collaborative spirit and such a spirit of, uh, and I wish I could remember exactly how Cindy Gallup phrased it in her, in her video that she did with us, uh, surprising the, the, the young woman that she talked to. But she said, you know, you climb up and you reach down, right? Mm-hmm. Like you when you advance in your career, the first thing you do is reach back down and help the next, next people up.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and that's something I've, I've personally tried to do i have a feeling both of you have tried to do that as well is like i i will never be comfortable with any level of influence or seniority or anything if i'm not also helping more people to get up there and if that means that they become your boss uh, all the better right yeah
3: <laughs> like, yeah and you know it's it's almost like selfish to look at it but um, you know, being generous um, doesn't just make you a, a, a good person, but it also makes you feel good. You know, it, it gets you out of, um, you know, stressful situations like these. And um, it's it's kind of the spirit of gratitude and generosity that that keeps us positive, like Ty, um, which I think is, is wonderful. I, I wonder you know, kind of in the larger scheme of things. Um, mm-hmm. I was reminded of Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs and, you know, Mary, um, wondering if you think that DNI is going to remain a priority at many of these companies like Unilever, Papa John's and the like, um, and and really, you know, I guess we'll see like the efforts that these champions continue to put um, fighting the good fight um, to keep diversity and inclusion um, top of mind as, as we kind of uh, maneuver this crisis.
1: As we were talking about the sort of lifting people up, one of the things that, that first came to mind is um, something Claudia Romo Edelman said about how it's important to be a giver without giving too much also. And oh. I think that there is sometimes a danger in, um, in people really taking on this responsibility to um, to pay it forward. You. you it's not, it's obviously very important to do that, but people also have to take care of themselves. And a lot of the people that I talked to, they spoke about sort of the limits of authenticity and the limits of, um, being that sort of voice of diversity and that, that shining example of what's possible, you know, that there's a point at which you have to decide how much of your energy you can give to these sort of, external initiatives in addition to just doing your job every day. You know, one of the things about being the voice of diversity and inclusion at any given uh, company or, um, you know, in higher ed or wherever it it is that you work is that you kind of have to play choose your battle all the time. You know, you you have uh, to navigate the discomfort of being the only disabled person in the room, the only person of color in the room, the only transgender person in the room. And you have to really make a lot of decisions about when to raise your voice about that discomfort um, and when that's just not going to serve you personally. So there's there's a lot of personal work that I think goes into D&I as well. And we often talk about it from an outside-in perspective, where we're talking about what the employers need to do, how to hit d targets, how to increase diversity. But we don't necessarily talk about it from the inside out perspective of what it's like to be the diversity hire, the person who has to make those decisions about how authentic they can be every day, when to code switch and all of that kind of stuff. And um, all of these people that I spoke to had really interesting takes on that. And I think that that's also a lot of what's going to sort of be coming up for people as they navigate the, the changes that are coming ahead.
0: Yeah. I think the, it is really underappreciated how to your point, And this is something I've heard a lot over the years is, is when you get into a role where you are representing a community or helping advocate even better, you know, if you're in a position like being a chief diversity officer, it's, you know, I get the feeling is that it is more exhausting than almost any role, right? Because you're, you're having to be this kind of constant educator, and put a spotlight on everyone else. While to your point, you know, doing your job, like like your job,
2: right? One of the to great, help. One,
1: one of ahead. the things that each of these mentors—Victoria Russell, Claudia Romo Edelman, Tyrone Heath—each one of them at some point spoke to the way that they're passing on this information to their mentees because. It's not just enough to reach down and lift up the next person. You have to prepare that person also for the reality they're stepping into. So, you know, Claudia Romo-Edelman, I remember one of the first things that she said during our interview was that she didn't even know she was Hispanic until she moved to the United States. Because she'd lived most (laughs) of her life in Mexico um, with some some other international locations. But until she moved to the U.S., she didn't realize she was Hispanic, Latino. Um, She had always... I believe she's, but anyway, that's besides the point. The point is more that, you know, you're passing on information to your mentees also about how to navigate your identity, how to be the only person in the room in any given situation, and when to remain authentic and bring your whole self to work. And when that might be a little too much, or that might alienate yourself from your colleagues. Um, So, it was really wonderful to see how people are passing on all the nuances of the experience as well. Not just uh, saying, yeah, come join me or, or go, you know, try to get into the C-suite. Like you, you can't really do that without giving people the proper tools to prepare them for how difficult the role can be as well.
3: Yeah. I, I um, actually didn't realize I was Asian American until I moved from Guam, which is very forward in diversity and, um, the melting pot um, that is, you know, really taken for granted um, until I came to college in the States. And, um, you know, there were specific classes for Asian American psychology and, um, you know, history of um, Asian Americans and, and discrimination in the U.S. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's really interesting to to kind of see race in a new way and also um, figure out what your role is in that. Um, I know that I was burnt out by mentoring too much um, and volunteering too much at the Asian American Journalist Association. Um, But now I have a mentor um, through the Adweek Mentor Program. Um, It's Judy Lee at Pinterest. And back to your point, David, um she you know we've met a few times and the first round of the program um has ended but we've decided to to keep in touch and um she's been very honest with me about what her experience has been like and you know what what it's like out there um at being an Asian American leader in the marketing space we're we're
0: Pretty much out of time this week but i did before we leave and while we're on this topic because this is something that's very close to my heart is about mentorship um and again i maybe it's just on my mind because i wrote a piece in this week's ad week about this kind of one-on-one mentorship that's really uh thriving under quarantine because you have privacy right like video uh chatting is of course becoming more mainstream but then also you're not sitting in your office having to have a candid conversation about why your boss doesn't understand you (laughs) Thank you. You're just in the privacy of your home, and uh, one of the things that really came up in that, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts uh, before we before we close out, is what it takes to be not just a good mentor, but also a good mentee. And you know, that I, I talked to a recruiter, uh, Katie Ramp from Metasec Hoffer, uh, who offered some tips on how to be like if you get an opportunity to talk to a mentor, like how to make the most of it. And you know, I think a lot of folks probably. Be able to kind of guess. It's be prepared. You know, bring questions. Um, bring really bring a clear vision for yourself of what you want from this relationship. And hopefully, the answer is not you want them to hire you, uh, because like that really kills uh, every mentorship thing. If if it's that transactional and you're just angling for a job. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, really act on their advice. Don't just take their advice and then show up a month later for your follow-up call and then not have done anything based on what they, you know, you, that's your time to really talk about how you put their advice into action. Um, but on the other hand, I want to ask you two, what do you think makes a good mentor? Like, what what do you think they should kind of bring to it or avoid doing that's going to make that relationship effective?
1: Um, I guess I'll I'll take that one. <laughs> um I haven't had very many structured mentorships in my life that go in either direction. They've all been a little bit more natural and organic. But um, I just from a a personal standpoint, I have a little bit of an anecdote that I think of year after year when it comes to my ability to offer advice to someone who is following in the same path that I followed in Um, as a working class person from you know, a different kind of background than, than a lot of my colleagues now as a professional journalist, I, um, was the first in my family to go to college and I did that in my thirties. So I had a lot of questions and a lot of, um, insecurity and a lot of imposter syndrome and stuff like that. And at the time I had a sort of organic casual mentorship, um, with someone who had attended the school that I was looking at, at, going to. And one of the things that she said to me that really stood out and that I repeat to people often is that in order for me to make the decisions about where I wanted to move forward in my career, I had to change my mindset to, um, and, and this is basically like now this is just a meme and it's all over the internet, but. At the time, it was years ago, and, and she told me that I had to start thinking basically like a mediocre white man. You know, She said, you need to stop thinking about whether you want to work in a restaurant or work this minimum wage retail job. Like Those are your only two options, and you need to start thinking about whether you want to be president of the Museum of Modern Art or president of the United States. Because the people that you're competing against, that's how they think. That's how they were raised to think They expected to go to schools like Stanford. They expected to get a job in the C-suite. And because you've never expected that or even conceived of it or even met anyone who has done those things, you can't even fathom how to get there. Um, And that was really a life-changing shift in perspective for me. And that's something that I've passed on many times to people who are going back to school as adults or who are just trying to make a big career change um, often from sort of more of a low income working class, blue collar industry to something that is more professionalized. Um, A lot of the challenges and the limits that we experience start in our own heads and we have to shift our thinking. We have to be able to conceive of ourselves as being on equal footing as the people who, who we're trying to join.
0: I love that. Yeah. I think the, you the, the best advice I could give to anybody if you're, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're applying for jobs or if you're trying to, you know, if you're finding a mentor or you're starting a mentorship relationship, um, and you're the mentee, it's I think to just treat everyone as a peer as an equal. Right. And, and that should go in both directions. But I think the bigger problem is the, the mentees tend to, whether it's idolizing or just saying like, and just kind of the way they approach it, it's like, Oh, you know, so much more than I do. And, and you're, you know you're so much more experienced than I am, and then of course the mentors are sitting there thinking like this person has such a fascinating and fresh perspective that I don't have. I can't wait to learn from them, and and it really makes everyone so much more comfortable, and it, and makes you feel better prepared to go in anything. If you just treat everyone and think of everyone as I'm on an equal footing with this person. They're not better than me. They're just maybe more experienced, or they're maybe you know. And then and then you're just having a conversation of equals, and it it takes the stress off the mentor too because they're not like, you know, it takes away some of that weight of like, <laughs> of like I'm shaping, a, you know, a, a future talent here. <laughs> it's like you'd rather just have a conversation uh, and treat each other one on one.
3: Yeah, and just um, know that you know that takes time. Um, I have a mentor, longtime mentor. It's almost I've almost known him half my life now. Um, and you know, now it's, I get to listen to him and, um, you know, there's no more pressure kind of to on, on both sides, but you know, we still very much believe with believe in each other and believe the best in each other. And you know, I always know that I can call him at any time, Um, and yeah. And, you know, I would say that David, if, you know, you are my co-host and a colleague and I think my friend, (laughs) um, but I think, you know, I do think of you as an unofficial kind of mentor figure. And, you know, I imagine anyone who you're mentoring or you're trying to set up mentorships for, um, they'd be very lucky to have you.
0: Oh, uh, I'm honored. That means a lot. Um, and, and I, like all things, uh, whenever, uh, I look good and someone says something nice about me, I'm going to stop the podcast right there because before, <laughs> before I ruin it. Um, but thank you so much, Co. as always. So glad to have you back and, and to know you're safe. Uh, and, uh, Mary Emily O'Hara, thank you so much for, uh, coming on the podcast for the first time.
1: Thank you. I had a great time talking with you guys.
0: And be sure to check out the Advic Champions edition edition, uh, that is out this week. And as I've plugged probably multiple times now, I also have a piece in there about uh, one on one mentoring, which obviously was a topic that came up quite a bit today so check that out and uh, reach out to us anytime. Our theme music is by home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Coim and edited by Lane mcGibney. Uh, you could reach us at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com And uh, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on uh, Apple podcast podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews make us feel better and they also help new listeners discover the show. For Adweek I'm David greiner and we will be back next week.